everyone. If you would like to support what I'm doing with Controversies in Church History and help me to expand its reach, please click on my Anchor page and click the support button to donate. Thank you for listening. Okay, so, um, the uh, Reformation of the World, the Gregorian Reform, 1050 to 1150. Um, this is, uh, uh, going to be about one of the real major movements that reshaped the medieval church, and that the church as a whole. Uh, in the Middle Ages, if you ever heard of it, it's uh, kind of important. And um, what uh, uh, what happens is in the Middle Ages, you're going to have a movement uh, starting with uh, starting. Uh, we'll get in a moment monasticism, but also going into the papacy shortly thereafter among the clergy to um, to reform the church. Usually, histories of reform in the Middle Ages start with this movement, but it's so important. So. Um, its effects are so uh, monumental, as you'll see. They, the stuff that happens here directly affects everybody here if you're, if you're Catholic. And, um, and so I'll start by prefacing this with a little bit of history, if you don't know about the Middle Ages. <clears throat> um, you know, the, the Roman Empire collapses in the West in the 5th century AD, and um, various kingdoms emerge. One of them, by the uh, 8th century, 9th century, emerges the, uh, the Kingdom of the Franks. And my name's Charlemagne. Charles the Great becomes, uh, creates his own empire. Long story short, I have to really condense all of this for you, but uh, he creates a big empire. When he uh, dies, he leaves it to his sons. Um, his sons eventually fall out. They can't sort of, um, they can't agree with each other on various things. Point is, the empire basically collapses uh, after uh, 843. It dissolves into a bunch of different warring kingdoms. This is what I mean by the feudalization of Europe. It's helped along with this, by the way, because of uh, outside incursion, uh, incursions by invading peoples, Vikings, you've heard of them, Magyars uh, from the east, and Arabs, um, Islamic conquests in the 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th uh, centuries. And so you have Europe going from having, you know, a centralized government of some sort to being very decentralized, to be, being very uh, violent. Uh, and what happens is you have the emergence of the feudal nobility, whom... One historian has called um, stationary bandits, and it's a nice term. I like it because it indicates what happened to regain stability eventually. That is, some of those, some of those, you know, basically these kingdoms. When I say kingdoms, feudal kingdoms, they're basically warlords, right? Who managed to conquer a territory. Some of these warlords basically decide to settle down, and in exchange for loyalty, people swearing their troth and stuff like that. I won't go into the feudal terminology. Um, <clears throat> the people in the area they agree to protect them. Hence the term station. I like that stationary. Instead of people going around marauding and stealing, they at least agree to protect people for protection. It's like protection money. Think of the feudal nobility as like the godfather, and you get the idea. This is what this is. I, I refer to it in my classes as a feudal, um, a feudal society is a government by big guys with swords. And that's essentially what it is. But it's a necessary step on trying to restabilize Europe. One other thing that survives the collapse of the Roman Empire, but especially Charlemagne's reign, is the idea of sacred monarchy. Monarchs are sacred figures in Western Europe. If you don't know, both in um, some of the Germanic kingdoms of Western Europe, there are traditions of um, sacred monarchy. And as well, from the 6th century in Spain, you're going to have uh, kings being anointed by the church. They will anoint them with oil in the same way that uh, you see uh, King David depicted in the Old Testament. So they develop rituals whereby the church gives its... Um, like it's it's blessing to some of these kings. So there is an aura around kings. They are religious figures, um, and they see themselves, by the way, 
generally speaking, as people who have, when they take it conscientiously, when they're not just, when they're not just mere warlords. Charlemagne, by the way, was a warlord who took it deadly seriously. They look out for the spiritual welfare of their subjects. It's part of being a good king, right? They want to be seen as good kings. They build churches. They donate money to that. So they have a, a stake in all this, even though, at heart, they are basically warlords who are quite violent people. Uh, things I need to emphasize here. So that's why this is the backdrop for what's going to happen uh, in the following centuries in this reform movement. Brief introduction. The second part of the lecture is monastic foundations. And um, one of the things to note about this is that this reform movement really begins with the monasteries. In fact, most of the great reform movements actually in Christian history, at least being a part of the Reformation, came from monastic life. A reason being, a couple of reasons for that. One, monasticism is, you know, represents a more direct, you know, if you like, you're devoting your whole life to prayer, basically, essentially. So it's a more direct trying to worship God. Second thing is, of course, monastic life is supposed to be separate from the world, from the secular world. So naturally drives to purify society, to make them, uh, make society more holy, tend to happen this way, east and west, I might add, in the first millennium uh, A.D., uh, and this is where it's going to get in the West in the ninth centuries. <clears throat> and um, particularly in the uh, ninth century following Charlemagne's reforms, Charlemagne's uh, reign, you're going to have something uh, historians call the Benedictine reform. By that, I don't mean St. Benedict of Nicaea, the guy you know is the founder of Western monasticism or should know. Uh, they mean a guy, uh, mean a guy named uh, Benedict of Anian. You don't need to know that name too much, but he was a ninth century reformer associated with uh, Charlemagne's court and some of his reforms, who... Um, Basically, um, um, what about restoring, as he thought, the rule of St. Benedict uh, in its what he thought was its purity. St. Benedict, of course, left a rule for his monks. It becomes the pattern for most of the monasteries in Western Europe at one point. Um, and uh, this re-emphasis meant, uh, going back sh more strictly to what the rule in, uh, entailed, but it also meant a greater emphasis on one thing in particular. It meant a greater emphasis on the recitation of the monastic office, on contemplative prayer, on the liturgical life in the monasteries. And I mention this because uh, this is important, because in the 9th and 10th centuries, <coughs> um, this has become the, uh, a larger focus in these monasteries than it ever had. Uh, St. Benedict, in his rule, lays out a pretty balanced sort of regime of you have prayer, but you also have work, right? Ora et labora, work and prayer is around. They put a lot of emphasis through these new reformed monasteries on liturgical prayer. Why? Because they've become to be seen as, um, one of their primary purposes, as intercessors. Um, intercessors for their patrons, but also for Christian souls, right? And people begin to donate money to them more and more because they we need the church's intercession. We need holy people's intercession, so... This is where this becomes um, uh, important. Um, and it's a slight shift here. The other major shift is that you have the emergence of what's sometimes referred to as the Cluniac movement, or the Cluniac mon uh, monasteries of uh, the 10th century. And Cluny is a uh, um, place in France. And monasteries uh, refounded in uh, the 10th century, or in uh, early 900s. And it has, <coughs> excuse me, a series of successful abbots who do something, as I'll get to in a moment, it's fairly, fairly, uh, fairly unique. Um, they found daughter houses uh, across what become France and Germany in uh, the succeeding centuries. Um, and um, this is actually an innovation. Um, monasteries have always been sort of one-off independent entities, right? They're all, they're all their own thing, self-contained. What's going to happen here is you're going to have abbots that will go out and they'll found one monastery, and they'll have other daughter houses that are connected to it, and they'll all sort of be under the headship of this one abbot at Cluny. Um, and I'll 
talk about this more in a moment. One of the things that makes this different and unique, and I'll come back to this in a second, um, is that effectively it gave its daughter houses exemption uh, from uh, the jurisdiction of local bishops. They wouldn't answer to them, they would answer to the abbot of Cluny. And the abbot of Cluny could be subject to the jurisdiction of kings, and this is this jurisdictional stuff may not sound important, it's the heart of what we're going to have to talk about here. Um, even though they could be subject to local lords, bishops, they were ultimately, the abbots of Cluny, only subject to one other authority, the bishop of Rome. Uh, which means they have a greater amount of independence, and they have a lot of influence across the continent. Another thing that happens toward the end of the period we're going to talk about, the end of the 11th into the 12th century, are the founding of new uh, contemplative orders. This is part of this reforming ideal that comes out of these monasteries, where, again, they want to go back to the original austerity of, um, of Benedictine monasticism. You get the founding of um, uh, orders at Cito, the Cistercians, in 1098. The Cistercians intentionally... You know, the Benedictine monasteries had become very much sort of um, almost like islands in the world. They were very connected to the lay patrons. They were close to towns. Cistercians, if you don't know, they try to find the most remote places they can. Their goal is to get away from the world. Um, they have a, uh, they re reintroduce uh, manual labor for everybody. So there's uh, prayer, um, liturgical prayer isn't necessarily as big a focus. Um, and they simplify their liturgy so it's less elaborate. So it, back to that original austerity. Uh, the same thing can be said of the founding of the Carthusians um, by St. Bruno in 1084. This is the Grand Chartreuse uh, uh, in, uh, in France, which is the same thing. This is this, might be this more austere, more going back to the original apostolic ideal of, um, of uh, monasticism. Uh, I found it already jumped out. That, uh, the Cluniac innovation is that series of daughter houses, right? And I mention this because... It's going to, become, uh, going to become a model for the papacy, as you'll see, whether intentionally or unintentionally, we're not really sure. But the idea of a sort of self-contained organization that is basically independent, that's a very powerful idea for them. Um, other innovation, by the way, is the whole idea of reformed orders. Um, that idea basically is, is peculiar to Western Christianity. There are no reformed orders in Eastern monasticism. They just do what they've always basically done. And so it's, it's something that, uh, I say this because it will feed into that reform movement as it moves into the wider world. The sense that, oh, we've decayed, we need to go back to that original purity is very powerful for a lot of these, uh, a lot of these people, which, as you'll see, uh, some, of these pe some of these same people are monks that become uh, members of the, uh, the hierarchy and, and start this movement in the Middle Ages. So, from monastic foundations, you go from monastic reform to papal reform in the 11th century. And so some background on this. Um, one is that in the 10th century, the papacy kind of hits its nadir. Um, it's usually seen as a very uh, ineffectual time for the papacy. There's a lot of uh, people on the throne of Peter who are disreputable. Uh, they get bad reputations for morality. The emperor, Otto, I think it's Otto II, has to go into Rome, depose a pope, another a pope on the, on the throne of Peter. Um, it, it's generally speaking a, not a great time in the history of the papacy. Um, this will extend even into the 11th century, uh, when, uh, by the way, I'm mentioning emperors. Maybe just talking about if you don't know what the empire is. We're talking about the Holy Roman Empire. This is the successors to Charlemagne. Charlemagne ruled a big empire which spanned all of Europe. By this time, we're not talking about that kind of empire. We're talking about basically uh, a monarchy which covers more or less parts, most of modern-day Germany, and which is relatively kind of weak. It's an elective monarchy. The emperors are elected by, their, by the princes of Germany. Among whom, by the way, and this is an important thing to note, 
there are bishops uh, who are also prince, secular princes who can vote. Very important uh, to note that. Uh, and they, and I should mention, by the way, Henry III, these other emperors, a lot of them are pious people. They donate land and money to the church. They encourage, by the way, all those reformers I mentioned earlier. A lot of them are patronized by, if not monarchs like Henry and his, pre and his predecessors, then by noblemen who are very much uh, encouraging that sort of reform. Um, but Henry III, basically, because of um, um, a situation after the 1030s in the 11th century where there are anti-popes, one pope, um, Benedict IX, actually comes pope twice. He's a really <laughs> embarrassing figure in the history of the papacy. Uh, manages to put his own um, his own um, appointee on the papacy in 1046, who is named Bruno. I can't pronounce the name. Latour. Uh, it's French. Who also is one of these reformers. I'll come back to this in a moment. But it means they have a lot of sway over the papacy as they had not had before. At the same time this is happening, in the, especially uh, early, but also definitely after 1050, this reforming spirit, this idea of reforming the church to make it pure, go back to the apostolic tradition, uh, is going to uh, come into Italy. And particularly it's associated with a couple of different people. The biggest one, the most famous figure, uh, is Peter Damien, St. Peter Damien. And the two sort of big cogs of the reform they have are, are um, uh, simony. Do you know what simony is? That is the buying and selling of church offices. Um, and celibacy. Uh, Peter Damien especially, he, if you know who he is, he founds a, a monastery in the 1040s, uh, becomes the confidant of many different popes. And one of his big, uh, big things that he is, uh, tries to correct are, quite frankly, sexual abuses among the clergy. And so what he wants to do is uh, get restore the clergy to, again, celibacy and moral purity. Um, he's also equally even more angry about simony. I mentioned the buying and selling of church offices. Um, I talked about feudal nobility in a feudal society. One of the main things in a feudal society, and one of the ways in which you <clears throat> you um, you sort of um, you have relationships, uh, feudal relationships, you seal them, is of course with the gifts of land, of offices. And so, what has happened by the ninth and tenth centuries is that a lot of these noblemen, these feudal nobles, these kings, have been for a few centuries now in the in the in the habit of giving church offices, church lands as gifts. You can give land to somebody, you found a church there, you appoint the pastor. Other cases, you have them appointing bishops. And this is important to know, because this seems normal to them in their feudal worldview. These reformers, this is going to be one of the major things that motivates them. They think this is, they think this is profane. They're profaning something holy, the office of priest and bishop. Uh, and so he will write uh, against this, as will Humbert of Silva Candida. Uh, you've heard that name before if you came to my lecture on the Great Schism of 1054. Humbert of Silva Candida was the sort of uh, defender of a very, very, very strong idea of papal authority. He's also involved here. He also writes against uh, simony uh, as well and uh, takes a much more drastic line than St. Uh, Peter Damien does. But you also have this reforming spirit hitting the laity in Italy and elsewhere. And so then the thing to uh, talk about here is a, um, the uh, Gorian reform is usually presented as it's just the work of the clergy, you know, the church imposes celibacy. As you're going to see, there's a lot of lay support for this. And the reason is, go back to what I said earlier, people have come to see the church more and more as a privileged intercessor with God, right? God needs to accept our prayers, accept our offerings, right? Um, there's increasing concern about the purity of priests. You don't want your priest being impure, right? Well, how do you know if the sacraments work, obviously, if they're impure? Uh, and so you're going to have movements like the so-called Paterines of Milan in the 11th century. The Paterines are a group of 
laymen who, um, who uh, essentially, I mean literally, laymen preaching, denouncing priests who are, who get into sexual peccadillos and stuff like this. Uh, and as you're going to see, they're going to have support from higher ranks of the clergy, including popes. Uh, this is going to cause a lot of conflict, because you're literally, you're literally going to have laity trying to sort of get rid of their own bishops. Uh, perish the thought, right? Um, but my point is that um, this is, uh, again, not just the imagination, this is something trying to be imposed on the church. There's a widespread concern. As people become more and more, because uh, lay spirituality is actually going to grow a lot in this period, along with this reform movement. So all that's happening in Italy in the 11th century as this begins to take off. But you also have the papacy becoming the center of this reforming spirit, <clears throat> this reforming movement. And quite frankly, just in terms of personnel, some of those, uh, I mentioned that bishop who was appointed by Henry III, uh, later Leo IX, who was also one of these great reforming popes of the 1040s, they literally will bring advisors with them from, Leo I think comes from uh, Germany, I think, maybe not, I can't remember, uh, but he crosses the Alps, he brings people from these reformed monasteries, monks, um, uh, who come into the papacy, become part of the Curia, who have been on fire with these ideas, and um, and they will, that in and of itself is partly revolutionary. You have people who've been caught with this ideal now in a position to, um, if you like, um, that's what I'm looking for. It's not too prejudicial or anything like this, but they're going to, um, I guess I'll use the term, they're going to weaponize the papacy for reform, basically, in a way it never has been done before. And in fact, after 1046, you're going to have popes doing things, um, conducting their government of the church in a way they haven't before. Popes begin to travel out, outside Italy on a regular basis after 1046. That's when Leo becomes pope. Um, intervening disputes between bishops, between jurisdictions. You know, all these jurisdictions, you know, monasteries, bishops, kings, so on and so forth. They'll summon church councils, issue decrees for local churches in ways they haven't done before. Uh, and they'll send out cardinals and legates to mediate disputes. And so they're becoming more proactive, especially in Italy first. It'll eventually branch out into other areas of Europe. And in particular, they're going to try, and this will be one of the big things, this is one of the, one of the main things they'll talk about, these reformers and their writings, their sermons. Um, they'll be very, uh, very concerned to secure what they call the liberty of the church. The, uh, in, uh, in Rome in 1059 and 60, a couple of uh, councils or synods are held uh, in the Lateran Basilica, which, um, among other things, uh, sort of announce a papal program for reform. 1059, they restrict the right to elect popes to only to cardinals in Rome. They effectively create what's going to become the College of Cardinals. Before, in fact, after, by the way, laymen, nobles, uh, the emperors had a lot of say over who became pope. And the reason they do this is because they want to get rid of that influence. Um, effectively nullify his uh, rights to, uh, to, to uh, intervene. Um, these synods also passed decrees forbidding any priest from accepting a church from a layman. Again, that strikes directly at this uh, feudal idea of just giving churches away or offices away for money. Um, they also begin to bar, they also forbid, and by the way, they don't actually attach any penalties to this, so it's just a rhetorical thing at this point. They attach, uh, they bar priests from living, uh, living in, this is the term I got from the source, so don't take offense at it, concubinage. That is to say, they have live-in wives who are not actually married. So, uh, and they bar them from sacking, uh, celebrating the sacraments, and they forbid, uh, they command the faithful not to un uh, assist with unworthy ministers, basically being those who are either married or have these sort of mistresses living with them. 
So this is the, the great program. Independence of the church, get rid of clerical marriage and clerical sex, basically. Um, and, um, and try to make the papacy the center of that. And uh, in particular, as you get uh, to the 1050s, Hildebrand of, uh, Hild, uh, excuse me, uh, Humbert of Silva Candida, other writers, Peter Damien, begin uh, writing treatises about the papacy, which exalt its authority in a way it never has been done before. Um, and again, I don't mean to stress, by the way, that this is really a doctrinal innovation. It's not. Um, Popes have been since you know since they we have records going back to the fourth um, fifth centuries asserted their right you know they're the universal pastor all this stuff what's going on here is a little different uh, people like um, Humbert are basically saying things that um, putting in very juridical terms like judicial terms like legalistic terms that the Church of Rome is literally the head of all the churches meaning that power flows directly from the Pope to other bishops. In other words, he's uniquely the vicar of Christ, therefore he, he almost like delegates his authority to all the other bishops in the world. This is a more extreme claim that had been made before. Uh, so much so that sometimes they sort of blur the lines between the papacy and the church itself. There's that much going on here. Uh, in fact, at one point, some of these, uh, some of these uh, papal um, uh, theorists even go so far as to say that basically anybody who disobeys the pope is automatically guilty of heresy. I should mention, by the way, at this point, this is mostly rhetorical. It's important to note. It's not like it's set in stone or anything like that. These are people announcing a program and doing this. Um, but it's pretty heady stuff. And it is bound to uh, come into conflict <laughs> with major, um, major civic powers, right? Because what they're saying here is that the papacy is totally independent. And that, as you're going to see, it is effectively the greatest power on earth. <laughs> I know how that sounds, maybe you'll get there. And this leads to what we uh, is sometimes famously called the conflict of investitures. And what we mean by investiture, by the way, is the investing of bishops with their authority as bishops. And uh, as I mentioned before, um, increasingly, as you uh, uh, throughout the 9th and 10th centuries, you had kings doing this, literally investing them with their authority as bishops, right? Uh, you should think this was a no-no, but it was done for a lot of reasons. And what's really going to set this off is the ascension of one of these advisors to Pope Leo IX uh, to the throne of St. Peter, a, man named, a monk named Hildebrand, a German monk, who takes the name Gregory, Gregory VII. And by the way, Gregory is taking the name from St. Gregory the Great. So he sees himself in the line of these great popes. And um, he's quite, and by the way, Gregory is where we get the name Gregorian Reform from. He's the one who's most associated with this. And he, he has this almost mystical connection, or feels this almost mystical connection with St. Peter. You know how popes have, uh, since ancient times, referred to themselves as the vicars of Christ? He never did. He referred to himself repeatedly as the vicar of Peter, over and over again, emphasizing the special authority he had from St. Peter. Um, and particularly the office of the pope was a sort of mystical thing. He was fond of quoting this phrase up here, um, uh, I, I gave you part of it. The whole phrase is, and this actually comes from St. Cyprian of Carthage back in like the third century, but the phrase is, our Lord did not say, I am custom, but I am truth. And he liked, uh, he liked citing that phrase. Why? Because it had been the custom for kings to have a lot of control over the church <laughs> in recent centuries. And he's going to say, no. <laughs> and this is the important point about what the, all these assertions of papal authority and the church's authority amount to. They amount to saying, no, no, we have divine authority directly. The church alone, not kings. Um, that's why he likes uh, issuing that phrase. 
Uh, and he will begin fairly quickly issuing decrees once he becomes Pope in 1073 against Simonith, again, that bugbear of the reformers, and against clerical marriage. He doesn't, as of yet, um, it takes him a couple of years, start attacking um, lay investiture. We'll get to that. But he will encourage rebellions against uh, recalcitrant bishops. Excuse me. He, we actually have letters of his. He leaves lots of letters, by the way. It's one of the reasons historians like him. We have lots of evidence about what he thought and said. He will send evidence. He will actually tell. There's a letter to a, a, a um, I think it's a duchess, some sort of um, uh, nobility in Flanders. Uh, you know, stay away from these bishops. Don't don't in their churches. Impure bishops, you should just get away from. It's quite extraordinary. They're deeply concerned, are these reformers, for the purity of the church. And as I get to in a moment, this is one of the things that makes this, at the time, by the way, and since, very controversial. He's encouraging rebellion against other bishops. And here's actually a quotation from one of his letters, Epistle 54. I have sought above all that the Holy Church, the Bride of God, and our mistress and mother should return to her proper glory and should stand free, chaste, and Catholic. There you have, in sum, this is the, the great ideal of these reformers. They've fallen away from our ancient purity. We have to get back to it. And what's the source of all this? The source of this impurity? Contact with the world. And by world, you mean lay, lay authorities, essentially. And the lay authority he comes into conflict with, conflict with, uh, well, we'll get to that in a second. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, I mentioned, oh, papal primacy renewed. Uh, again, the idea of the church as the, the head of all of Christendom. Again, free and canonical elections. That was, again, that was having to do with the papacy, but also with bishoprics. Again, bishops were, this is an ideal they had. In, in practice, a lot of these bishops uh, got appointed various different ways, but their ideal was to get lay influence out of the election of bishops altogether. And so he begins to try to intervene in other kingdoms, um, particularly with Philip the, uh, excuse me, Philip the First of France, um, who doesn't have much success in stopping him. He still <laughs> wants to invest bishops. Uh, but he does this, and in fact, he's already drawing up a program by 1075. He leaves behind this wonderful little document uh, called the Dictatus Pape, Papal Sayings. And in fact, we think this is actually a list of headings that um, probably St. Peter Damien, because he was still alive at this point, was going through ancient collections of canons, of canon law, to try to sort of make sense of them. And there are just a list of sort of, I, I actually had a, had a book with this in, I was going to read it to you, now I can't do it, but you can look it up on the, it's on the internet, it's easy to find, of things the Pope can do. And it's pretty breathtaking. Um, the Pope Bishop of Rome is the only universal bishop. The Bishop of Rome... Uh, can basically appoint bishops and redeem at will. He can do this, he can do that. Um, the Bishop of Rome, uh, all these other sorts of things. is the source of all the other... It's, it's this very exalted notion of what the Pope can do. That the Pope can be judged by no one. Uh, that is literally one of the most inflammatory of them, however, is the Pope can depose uh, and uh, remove um, unjust rulers. Literally, he can tell people who are Christians, don't obey your authorities, they're, they're awful. And by the way, that is definitely an innovation. Nobody had ever claimed the right to do that ever uh, before. Um, and by the way, this was never put into, into, into practice. This was just a sort of, like a think piece, if you want to put it that way. But it shows you what he's thinking in a pretty clear way. And so it comes into conflict, of course, with the empire. And the emperor, Henry IV, and it's important to go into the background of this. His father, Henry III, remember him, he had become a kingmaker for a little bit, a pope maker. Uh, he died when he was very young. He was about six years old. 
And so uh, the empire went into regency. Why is that important? The empire is kind of a decentralized institution. And that means is without, without a really strong leader to keep it in line, the princes have become very powerful at his expense. So while he's six years old and he have people ruling for him, a lot of legal privileges, things that uh, his father had accrued, they sort of dissolve back to these uh, princes, right? Um, he becomes emperor uh, in, uh, at six year, uh, six year, age of 16 in 1066 and attempts in the next seven years to try to recover some of his leverage vis-a-vis -vis these princes through various means, partly through warfare. You know, he'll fight his barons uh, a lot. And Henry IV, by the way, is a... Again, like most medieval monarchs, he's not a, this isn't a, like of a later age, any Renaissance prince who's learned. I can't stress this enough. Medieval kings are, for the most part, warlords who do two things with their time. Kill people in battle, kill animals on the hunt. That's mostly what they do. Henry IV is a bad dude. <laughs> he's not somebody you trifle with. Uh, there's a rebellion in Saxony in one of his parts of Germany, which he brutally puts down uh, by 1075. I mention this because um, during, um, during his regency, you'd had... You know, things get right with the church. Remember, again, some of his princes, they're bishops. And, of course, he needs to have control over the empire. It's very important to him that he be able to appoint them. Which he, uh, and appoint them and, of course, invest them, which he starts doing uh, after he gains control of uh, Saxony. And this will bring him into conflict, of course, with Gregory. And uh, particularly, remember Milan and the Paterines? He tries to invest the see of Milan with his choice of bishop. And literally, literally, Gregory will actually basically <laughs> try to encourage uh, the people in Milan to go kick him out. Uh, this leads to this conflict. Actually, he will issue an admonition, which uh, effectively tells him, uh, in, really in some fairly rude terms, if you don't do this, I'm going to excommunicate you and send you to hell. Uh, that is effectively it. Gregory was um, also kind of a, he was no one to lie down and take this, right? Uh, and so in response, and he also, by the way, calls a synod, which uh, condemns uh, lay investiture uh, in 1075 in Rome. In 1076, the response of Henry, by the way, and by the way, I should mention this, virtually every bishop in Germany is on Henry's side. This causes major divisions within the church, what uh, Gregory does. Uh, he holds his own sort of synod of bishops at Worms uh, in Germany, familiar name, if you know the history of the Reformation, um, which condemns him as a false pope. And he sends letters, and you have other theologians from Germany sending letters, basically, and Henry sends a famous letter, it's, it's, you can find it on the internet as well, basically telling him he's a false pope, and then he should, it ends, actually ends with this refrain, descende, descende in Latin, step down, step down. So they're really, it's really, this is a dramatic moment, obviously. This is, you know, zero-sum game at this point. And so what happens is Gregory plays his trump card, he excommunicates Henry, and he absolves his subjects, which include those princes, by the way, who've been rebelling against Henry, from their allegiance to him. Basically saying, you can go get rid of them. That's a, a pretty, that's a, that's a bold move to take. And it works, because it all immediately starts a rebellion. And Henry, he begins to have trouble, and so he does something kind of daring. He crosses into Italy without, with a sort of skeleton of an army. Um, Gregory hears of this, and he retreats to a castle in a place called Canossa in the Northern Alps. Uh, again, one of his lay, lay uh, supporters, Matilda of Tuscany, has a castle there. He goes there. And um, so the story goes. He goes there, Henry does, as a penitent to get absolution for the excommunication. Now, uh, I say this because the story goes, like, it can be embellished, like, he, he sat out in the snow for three days, dressed as a penitent and all this stuff. Um, this is actually a very high-stakes game, 
because the Pope has leverage over him only as long as he's excommunicated. Uh, and he's very, very suspicious of his, of his, of his intentions because Henry's, again, no, nobody to trifle with. But, of course, he's still the Pope. And so he wavers, but after three days, he decides, yeah, I'll let him in, and he absolves him and lifts the excommunication. This, by the way, is an extraordinary moment in world history. I cannot think of... I can't think of any probably in human history where a, a king who is supposed to be ruling by the grace of God humbles himself for someone like this. Even though, by the way, uh, it's a losing game, as you'll see, for Gregory. It's still a pretty uh, momentous thing to assert, which is what he's doing, that, that, that the church basically is a greater power and authority than the king. But, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, while he's away, and this is a pope, uh, Gregory claimed he had nothing to do with this, in his absence, Henry's absence in Germany, the princes of Germany elected an anti-pope. And I say this, by the way, Gregory said he didn't do this himself. The princes said, they were, hey, the pope told us to do this, or at least they were claiming his authority to do it. So, uh, even if the pope didn't intend it, things kind of got out of hand quickly. And in fact, Henry uh, went back and started fighting against his nobles, began having success, began investing bishops again. And so in 1080, uh, he, uh, Gregory again excommunicates and deposes uh, Henry. Uh, this time, of course, it doesn't go so well, because in the end of 1080, uh, Henry uh, kills uh, the anti-king, uh, named Rudolf, uh, and he elects his own, has, holds the synod, has an anti-pope elected. And then in 1081, he invades Italy with an army, and after a three-year siege, marches into Rome, kicks out Gregory, and uh, installs his anti-pope in Rome. Gregory will try to come back, by the way, uh, in that year well, with allies from the south, the Normans, if you remember who they are, uh, in southern Italy, um, who are actually great fighters, but they can't take the city. They actually wind up going and sacking it, making him deeply unpopular for having done this. And he dies in Salerno in 1085. And let me find this great quotation for you. Uh, yeah, he died. Supposedly, this is supposedly his last words. I have loved righteousness and hated, iniqu hated iniquity, therefore I die in exile which he does in 1085. And so this is the second phase of this conflict of investitures. But that doesn't end things, uh, because uh, eventually his successor, Ant uh, uh, Urban II, drives the anti-pope from Rome. And in fact, Henry IV's sons rebel against him in 1106. He will die in 1107. Um, it's only as you get into the 12th century, you begin to have people working this out. And I don't have time to go through the mechanics of this. But effectively, what's going to happen first in a, a, a rudimentary way in England and then in France, they're going to begin to grope toward the idea of having dual investiture. That is to say, when a bishop in the empire, in France, in England, when they're invested by the... Because they are their secular lords in these places. When they're invested, they'll be invested with their secular temporalities. They'll swear a feudal oath to the king. They'll give, he'll give him land, whatever. He'll give him a ring signifying this. Um, but with his spiritual uh, authority, he'll be invested by a papal legate or another bishop and stuff like this, which is essentially what they uh, what they um, uh, what they agree to in England and France. Doesn't come to uh, an end in Germany. By the way, there's still fighting going on until the 1120s um, between Henry V and Pope Calixtus II when they sign the Concordat of Worms, which does basically what I just said, embraces dual investiture. Uh, but it also basically says, this, and this, is the, this is the key point, that effectively the candidate has to be chosen by the Pope. That is to say, whoever's going to be there has to be the choice of the Pope. What they allow, of course, in the case of Germany, uh, in terms of the empire, is that the, the king can be present while the guy's being uh, uh, invested. That means he can at least intimidate him, at least keep him in line, that sort of thing. And so there's at least some, he has some control over it. Uh, and this is usually taken as the sort of uh, end point of this conflict of investitures. 
Um, and it's important because uh, this is really for the first time you have the, uh, I won't use that phrase uh, because it's not like this, but you have the separation of spiritual and temporal authority into two legally defined um, entities, institutions. Why do I mention that? Again, historical momentous. The, the, this is a precondition of something like our modern church and state. This is separation of church and state. This is not separation of church and state, by the way. I didn't say that, but you have to have this first before you even get to anything like that. Uh, and momentous for that reason. Now, by the time you get to the 1120s, most of those original reformers are dead. However, the ideals that they inspired will inspire further changes in the papacy and in the church, which come to fruition by the middle of the... Um, of the uh, 12th century, and um, one historian in particular uh, has called these changes the Papal Revolution. Uh, Harold Berman, a legal historian, many years ago, wrote a book about this. And um, so my last section is what the Papal Revolution hath taught. Because I mentioned all those claims that Gregory made and some of his advisors. It didn't issue immediately in the creation of what we think of today, we think of the medieval papacy, a big curia, a big court, like a monarch, that comes in the 11th, uh, excuse me, um, 12th and 13th centuries. Because what's going to happen is, partly again, on the force of those ideals, you're going to have the creation of institutions uh, around the papacy to make good on all those claims effectively that were being made for him in the, in the 11th century. A chancery to issue documents. You remember why, that, why, that, why is a chancery issuing doc, documents important? Remember in the Middle Ages, you know, people can't read and write. So issuing, issuing an official document with a seal on it and everything, it Again, it almost has a sort of power. This is a people who revere the written word, right? The word of God's text. It gives it a sort of solidity, right, to its authority in this way. Uh, plus, you can keep track of things, obviously. Uh, a treasury to house uh, its wealth, but also its archives and its uh, a library of documents. By the middle of the 12th century, the Curia is acting, uh, excuse me, the College of Cardinals is acting something like a court in its own right. Uh, people attending the Pope, you know, jockeying for position in, in that uh, milieu and stuff like this. Um, with the Curia being a massive legal operation, because you have people, uh, one of the things that gets into those ideas of papal reformers is that the church, that the uh, Bishop of Rome is basically a sort of final appeal for all cases in the church. So you have increasingly litigants coming into Rome uh, year after year to hear cases. They'll come there. They'll have pilgrims, of course, as well. Um, and so effectively what happens by the middle of the 12th century is that they have created the first real modern bureaucracy. Uh, effectively, the only one in Europe until the 16th or 17th century. Uh, the first real government, if you want to put it that way. Um, and in fact, by the 13th century, you begin to have a change in the way that people refer to the Pope, because I'll talk about the, you know, the Pope, right, Papam in Latin. Um, the term papacy, right, that term, it's papatum, obviously in Latin. That begins to appear in the documents, right? Not just the, the office and the man, but the sort of apparatus around him becomes uh, solidified. Um, you also have, and this is sort of unrelated, but related at the same time, the creation of canon law. Because the church has always had laws, always had canons, and basically written down customs. What's going to happen in the 11th century is that medieval universities in Italy are going to rediscover Roman law. And what's going to happen is the church is going to use this law to create its own legal system, to organize all of its activities. Uh, it collects taxes, by the way, tithes. It collects Peter's pens. To this day, it collects Peter's pens. Uh, and to organize all that stuff. And it will create, and this is you know, Harold Berman, that legal historian, mentioned this, it will create the first modern system of, of law, a real legal system with legal principles, like judicial science, if you use that terminology, since the ancient world, since Rome has fallen. 
Um, and so it, um, uh, again, the separation of jurisdictions, this creation of this independent body of law, all, by the way, serves to make the church more independent as an institution. I should mention, by the way, all those claims of being independent, they never got that in the Middle Ages. In fact, I meant just to give you an example. Um, I mentioned emperors interfering with the papal elections. Do you know when, by the way, um, papacy was finally freed from any sort of uh, lay interference like the, the uh, emperors of, uh, Holy Roman emperors or the emperors of Austria when that occurred? Not until after World War I. It's uh, only in the 20th century that they've actually been really freed from that sort of interference. Uh, so a long, long time. One last thing about this, uh, I, I did explain the invention of sovereignty up there. Um, papal theories of government are going to be deeply influential. I don't have time to go into this. But they effectively invent what we think of as modern ideas of political sovereignty. The idea that someone has, you know, um, um, is a sort of, this you know, gets mentioned in the Dictatus Pape in uh, Gregory's uh, writings, that he's the only one who has the right to make laws, new laws for the church, stuff like this the lawgiver who has sort of final say over all these sorts of things. All this, by the way, will influence virtually every modern, just as canon law influenced every, every modern, influences every modern um, Western European system of law, so the medieval people, medieval theories of sovereignty will be the basis for modern notions of divine right of kings, later on, um, you know, the sovereignty of the people, right, popular sovereignty, all can be traced back in some ways to medieval theories of sovereignty. Then finally, one other thing, because um, one of the things, again, I mentioned before, one of their big, um, one of the big uh, things that they emphasized, these reformers, Gregory and people around him, was the idea that what made the church decay was, again, too much contact with the lay world. And I think, and there's a lot of loose talk these days, really silly loose talk about clericalism. However, there is such a thing as clericalism. And if you want to, and again, the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Churches, any church where it has... Uh, a sacramental priesthood that's going to be liable to abuse because you really can't have the church without the sacraments and therefore without the priests, therefore they have more authority than they would, like I say, in the Protestant ideas of the church. Having said all this, you can probably trace some of, if you want to see problems with, that's uh, um, what I'm looking for, clericalism uh, in the church to the reformers because they very much, very much wanted to beat into people's heads that the clergy were a superior caste in society. They were above and outside these feudal obligations. Um, to go into just a couple of examples of this, um, uh, anyone's familiar with St. Thomas Beckett? St. Thomas Beckett, of course, is the guy who got martyred. And this is the same time frame. He's not, again, connected directly with this reform movement, but the same ideals. Things like benefit of clergy. Benefit of clergy in English medieval law was if you're a clergyman, you could actually appeal to the church to escape uh, prosecution in, in law courts, in civic, uh, civil law courts. That is to say, you commit, commit murder and get tried by the church instead of the, uh, the king, which is great because all the church can do is defrock you. <laughs> uh, which, of course, this is... And you, by the way, you wonder why they, they had... And by the way, this happens in canon law. There's actually a phrase. Uh, I think it's exemption of clergy. I can't remember the, the Latin phrase, but exemption of clergy. One of the reasons why, by the way, is, again... Lay noblemen were kind of violent, and clergy were unarmed, so there were there were instances where clergy were attacked. So this is, there's a rationale behind it, but increasingly they made a claim to be above, to be superior to um, the lay orders of society. In fact, when I say orders, have you ever also heard of the sort of idea of the three orders of medieval society? Have you ever heard of this? Like this, is, and I'll tell you where this this idea comes from. Um, 
Uh, the idea, sometimes idealized in paintings and stuff like this, is that there were three orders of society in the Middle Ages. Those who fought, nobility, those who prayed, the clergy, and those who worked, the peasantry. Um, this idea, by the way, first appears in the ninth century in France, uh, of course propagated by clergymen. Why? Because they want to see themselves as a, a, a part, of this, uh, part of this society which stakes this particular claim. Uh, and in fact, um, um, this is going to be, again, this real hard and fast distinction between, it'll emerge later on in the church's history, between clergy and laymen. You can kind of go back to, by the way, when I, when I say they say they're superior to laymen, I don't mean, by the way, ordinary lay people. They mean kings and nobility. This is mostly striking at civic authority because they want to get out from under its thumb. But, of course, you can, I think it's obvious how that could be abused, right, if you make, universalize that. Um, you have Lateran councils in the 12th to 13th centuries, which will, um, they're the ones really that bring this, the reforms to their head, all the ideals I've already mentioned. They are the ones who, um, among other things, they will actually... Um, Enjoin celibacy. Uh, finally, on the clergy, they will get rid of clerical marriage uh, altogether. That's gone. Uh, actually, it more or less already been joined, but they enforce it for the first time in an effective way. Um, and uh, they'll also um, um, confirm things like marriage as a sacrament. Uh, and so they're going to make things very solidified, uh, separation between clergy uh, and laity going forward. A couple other more general points I want to make about this reforming movement. One is that, on the whole, just to be clear, but I, I more or less admire Gregory the Seventh. I think he was basically right. I think the reformers had, I think it was, a, I think it's a necessary thing for the church to be at least somewhat independent of civic authorities. That hadn't been said. Uh, independence is not necessarily an absolute, right? It never, nothing's absolute in this world, right, for the most part, except God Himself, right? Uh, my point is that uh, one of the reasons why Gregory had a lot of people who really hated his guts, even clergymen, even bishops at the time is that he, this reform movement sometimes was used, quite frankly, to just subvert <laughs> secular authority. And again, remember again, let me go back to the, my beginning of the lecture when I talked about the situation of Europe in the 9th, 10th centuries. Uh, social order was kind of fragile. They just had all these invasions, you know, the empires collapsed. Um, you know, Henry IV is, he has responsibility for civic order. And here you have a pope basically stirring up, he literally causes a civil war <laughs> in Germany. Um, and this has been one of the criticisms of the papacy throughout the centuries. Uh, again, I don't say every claim is actually uh, true, but there's something to this, right? Um, of subverting legitimate authorities. You can see that as a legitimate critique. In the end, however, I don't think you could have I don't think the church could have asserted its independence really in any other way uh, at this point. Um, and in fact, again, I say that why? Again, you are dealing with kings who, you know, if you asked, you know, you see how, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't want to make, use critical terms of Gregory, but he could be um, I'm looking, outspoken, um, aggressive, those sorts of things. If he had asked Henry IV, pretty please, can you give us some independence? Do you think he would have actually... No, they would have just invited abuse. Uh, they really had to be sort of... They had to be belligerent about this, I think, just to even get uh, some of that there. Um, having said all that, this assertion of papal supremacy in many ways came with great costs, I think, in the long run, whatever the rightness of it. Um, one of the things you'll see, because I, I admit when I, I, if you don't know, I've told people my story before, not uh, everybody here, 
the um, you know, when I became Catholic, my understanding of the papacy was mostly it's this teaching thing that preserves true faith and doctrine and all this stuff. And you find you study the Middle Ages, when people think of the papacy, they think about papal governance. Literally, to govern the whole church, they, that's, it's, it's seemingly its major concern. And by the way, part of the reason they didn't, by the way, concern themselves with doctrine, they figured the doctrine was already known. He was just following tradition. They were very, for all the charges that people made about Gregory being an innovator, in doctrinal terms, there was none, for the most part. But the way he tried to govern, oh, that was, that was different, uh, to say the least. Just to give you an idea, one last thing uh, about how this went. Um, throughout the Middle Ages, you would have thought, this is the age of faith, right? Most, uh, most, um, you would figure most of these popes would be trained theologians like they are today, right? Almost every pope in the high Middle Ages, uh, the greatest of popes is what? Innocent III, right? 12-something 12, 12 to 12-15. Great pope. They're all canon lawyers. Why? Because their, their primary duty then was to govern the Christian people. Uh, and again, I, th again, I think some of that was necessary. I think in the long run it, it, it came at a great price because I think they did neglect you know, oh wait, that preaching and the gospel thing and all the other sorts of, I'm thinking the Reformation, right? And I don't want to buy too much into that. But it, um, uh, in the long run, it did come with costs. Even if I think at the, the, the time it may have been the right thing to do. Um, one last thought. One last thought before I take questions on any of this. It's interesting to me coming across doing research for this. Uh, this is a dramatic, this is a dramatic, you know, uh, episode in history. It's where I like to talk about it. I give this lecture, by the way, in my Western Civ classes. When I teach them. It's interesting though, uh, Gregory VII is a saint, but he was only beatified and canonized in the 17th and 18th centuries. For the most part, he kind of falls out of, there are documents mentioned in you know, papal documents, but he only becomes a big figure again, you can guess when, after the Reformation. Both Protestants and Catholics all of a sudden are very interested in, in this guy, uh, but he gets canonized uh, by uh, Benedict Fourteenth in uh, the 18th century. So, uh, there you have it. There is the uh, uh, the Gregorian reform. Uh, thank you guys for listening.